0: in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: Hey, welcome to the Horse Hour podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stevenson, and today I'm talking to Jessica Grove, who's an equestrian fitness instructor, and Lauren St. John, who's the author of many books, including the $1 horse series. This is Horse Hour. Now just before we get started most of you would have seen the awful accident that happened last week. It was Mark Evans horse-drawn carriage master was driving along the road carrying a funeral hearse at the time when a driver tried to overtake, cut in too early and hit the lead horse called Will and sadly Will passed away at the scene. Poor Mark was thrown from the carriage. It was just a horrific accident. I spoke to Helen this morning and Obviously, they're going through a really rough time right now and they're trying to deal with the grief of losing Will and the fact that Mark's trying to recover from his injuries... And you have been really supportive. There's been loads of groups set up to help them, loads of support groups and GoFundMe pages. But Helen did say, please, please, please be careful if you'd like to donate because she hasn't actually authorised or given permission for any of these GoFundMe pages. And she doesn't want anybody to get conned or ripped off. So the best thing to do is to head to their direct Facebook page, which is Mark Evans Horse Drawn Carriage Master. All the legitimate information will be on there. Updates on how to donate if you want to, if you just want to give your well wishes and say, you know, you're thinking of them. Um, There's also a petition that's been set up, which Mark and Helen have authorised. It's going to go to Parliament and it is to make a legal requirement to legally have to slow down and pass a horse wide and slow so we can prevent anything like this happening again. Because a lot of us have been in a situation where drivers zoom on past us so quickly that it scares our horses. It's, it's so dangerous, and poor Mark and Helen have had to suffer the worst possible outcome. So, we are thinking of them at this time, and uh, we do wish Mark all the best in his recovery. Hello. Hello Jess, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. Oh my gosh, please excuse the state of me. Oh don't, I've just come in from the yard and I'm just like, oh my god, have I seen myself? I hope this isn't being put on video. That's why we're lucky that we could do all this recording, it's audio only, no video. Excellent. Excellent. It's uh, it's horrible out there, isn't it? Yeah, awful, absolutely awful. Do you keep yours in or out? Uh, She's out. It's, so, it's, uh, and we love it because yeah. like in the summer and stuff, it's amazing and it's sunny and we love them being out. <laughs> but when it comes to days like today and you're trying to do the haylage and the wind is blowing. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a horse that lives out then. Where do you live? Uh, so I live in Westmoors. Which is in Dorset.
2: Yeah, Dorset, yeah, sorry. And my horse lives down four miles down the road in West Parley.
1: You it's said a little you- private yard. A little private yard? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. How many people yeah. are, are there? Um, I think there's about five or six. Oh, it's quite nice sometimes being on a quiet yard, isn't it? Yeah. I went yeah. when I moved to Hertfordshire. I had to go and search around because. I think with yards, it's always better to get them on recommendation because you yeah. know what the other people are like and finding a yeah. good yard can be quite difficult. So when I moved to Hertfordshire, I didn't know anybody. And the hardest thing, I i didn't care where I lived. I knew that I'd be okay. Yeah. The hardest thing was finding somewhere for my horse. Yeah. And I remember going to this one yard and I thought, oh, it looks amazing. I mean, it had all the bells and whistles. It had a school, it had an indoor school, it had perfect hacking. And she took me round and the lady was really lovely and she showed me all the facilities and then as, as I was there longer, more and more people were arriving. And I was thinking, this okay. is quite crazy. So I said, how many people, how many horses do you have here? And they said, oh, well over 100. Wow. I know. I was like, oh, actually, I think uh-huh. it's going to be a bit, a bit busy for us. Yeah. So um, have you been on a big yard before? Yeah. yeah um,
2: so when I worked in Germany with various dressage riders, um, yeah, we used, we've had uh, yards of 40 plus horses. Oh, wow. um, and then obviously at the state stud as well um, there's a you know a couple of hundred there so it's just quite nice actually to bring it back a little bit and um,
1: you know enjoy it on a smaller scale <laughs> yeah and and there's a bit more of a like a helping each other out isn't there when there's a few yeah. of you what yeah. were you doing in Germany I've done
2: a couple of things um when I was 16 I wanted to work with horses in Germany um because I wanted to know as much as possible about horses and um the Germans were the best at the time mm. so I said to my mum send me over um <laughs> so at 16 I worked for the Hanoverian auctions in okay. Verdun.
1: wow um what did your mum say uh, was she like seriously Jess I can't send you to Germany by yourself
2: <laughs> no because she left England to go to Germany at 18 and to work with horses oh. so yeah so she was like brilliant I'll send you packing and like literally the next day
1: I was gone (laughs) (laughs) oh it must be so nice having a mum that understands because then she gets what you get what you what you want and what you're going through
2: and all you know she she used to ride and um she's through the whole of my career she's been you know so supportive and she's always been the driver Mm -hmm. the and you know the chauffeur the everything the Getting the horse food, getting the hay, so you know we could sort of go off and compete. Yeah, so she's she's been really good.
1: So at sixteen, then, when we're just finding out about boys, you're flying over to Germany. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and was it easy to get a job? Yeah,
2: it was. So the at the auctions, they take in riders and grooms um, as the auctions happen. And there's always a waiting list for people to get on. And because my mum used to ride at the auctions, she knew the guy who was running it. So on the next intake, I was in straight away. Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah. So I had 10 horses in my care. I think 150 horses went through the auction and each groom had uh, 10 horses and one rider. And uh, you just have to crack on. You you start at six and um you finish at about
1: seven ish in the evening (laughs) um what What do you have to do at the auctions then because for those of us like me that i've i've heard of them but i don't actually know what it consists of the horses come in for two weeks and they're all either
2: just freshly backed or um have sort of just been started a little bit so it, it is a bit crazy but like I said, each rider has 10 horses. So first thing in the morning, you you feed and put new straw in because they're all on deep litter to make things a bit quicker. Mm. Then everybody gets timing. So the rider then, you know, um, say, for example, the first horse is out at nine o'clock. You've got half an hour for that horse to be ridden in the arena. And they do get ridden round like it's auction day every day. And they Did come it- back the next ready and it just carries on like that all day do they get ridden
1: in the auctions then yes okay yes. so basically there's a big arena and then you'll go in with several horses one at a time and you'll ride them around and then there are people there that are actually buying them
2: yeah it's quite sort of prestigious at verdon so it's one horse goes in at a time and they basically get trotted round an extended trot until somebody um somebody buys uh, and they they go for sort of a quarter of a million to half a million euros um so it's big money over there is it down to their
1: breeding then and and where they come from yes so it's all Hanoverian bloodlines oh beautiful so for for you then you've got to be experienced to be able to to be allowed to ride them
2: yeah, so they are all, like I said, they're all young and they're all a little bit crazy because their <laughs> life's just been turned upside down, you know, um, and it is, it is hard work and I think it's really taxing on the horses, um, but I mean, some really good horses have come from there, but I, it's not really, I don't think I would buy a horse from the auction, to be honest. Oh, really? Uh, Why is that? Uh, just, if they, they just get hammered. You know, to the point when when they are a little bit tired, they sort of get a vitamin B injection, and then they sort of carry on. You know, and oh my gosh, uh, they
1: inject them to keep them going.
2: Well, they used to. They this. I mean, this is fifteen years ago. So. And how long did you do it for? uh, So I did a two-week stint there.
1: Yeah.
2: And then I moved on to a dressage yard after that. Still Um, in Germany. So I took my horse over and trained over there for a couple of years. I wanted to you know learn as much as possible and I thought it was the best way to do it was to learn from the Germans
1: well it is very much between the Germans and the British as to yeah. who's the better dressage riders and, and some of their techniques and some of the even even when we're watching things on TV we're watching the Olympics we're watching you know international shows the FEI, and all the rest of it and um, you can tell they're very elegant so elegant
2: yeah definitely they're so athletic aren't they and mm. just find everything so easy
1: So now then you realised, you know, this is what you want to do and you want to be a dressage rider. How long did you stay in Germany for?
2: So I was there on and off. I came home for a couple of years, then went back and worked for the Hanoverian State Stud. Mm. And I worked with a guy called um, Holger Finken, who started Horses Like Sally Nero.
1: Oh, wow. Um,
2: Yeah, so again, another big yard, really amazing horses going through through that yard mm. uh all coming in sort of fairly young uh, and all being trained up to Grand Prix so that's where I learned how to sort of do all my Grand Prix moves
1: was <laughs> <What's> your, <laughs> your favorite move out of that the Grand Prix
2: I think it has to be Piaf I think oh, yeah. that when you I think once you learn that and your horse learns how to do it I think that is the ultimate feeling of suppleness and athleticism mm. and togetherness I think it's uh, yeah it's a bit of an awesome feeling
1: <laughs> you see blackjack and I can PF very well when we're going downhill and we're spooking. but <laughs> that's the only time and when it's happening I'm loving it and my hips are swinging and his bum's swinging and we're going oh yes we look amazing but we can't do it on demand <laughs> no, I know what you mean <laughs> So, so your mare then, it is a mare that you have. Yeah. So your mare, is she a Hanoverian? No, she's a Welsh D. Is she? <laughs> so yeah. the one that you had in Germany, was she, was she a Hanoverian? So I went over there with a Hanoverian gelding. Mm.
2: Um, he got to Grand Prix and um, I then sold him and he went to Spain to compete on the young rider team. Oh,
1: fantastic. Um,
2: yeah, and then um, with that money, I bought a five-year-old mare who had never done anything in her life. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I
1: got, managed to get her up to pre-St. George before I sold her. Amazing. And, and you're so, competing. So this is, you're, you're training them from scratch, taking them all through all the levels and then competing the two of you together in, in the competitions. Is that right? That's it. And how long did it take you? I've heard that it's about eight to 10 years to get up to Grand
2: Prix. Definitely. Um, I mean, some, I think some horses are, there is the exception where they're coming up to Grand Prix a little bit earlier, but I think eight to 10 years is a fair, you know, fair amount of time to give them um, to, to do that. Yeah.
1: And would you say it's easier to take them to that level when you've had them as a youngster or is it easier to take something that's six years old, that's done a little bit?
2: Um. I, I always prefer a youngster because you're, you're starting with a blank canvas and you can then build on that relationship. Whereas if, you, if you've had a horse that has maybe done a little bit, you don't know if they've come from a good home and you don't know what they've sort of gone through. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I know youngsters aren't for everybody. So I think it's a, a balance of what you prefer as a person and how you get on with that horse um but I've always preferred you know a, a young one plus the money as well they're always cheaper when you know they don't know anything
1: so yeah that's been um they're definitely what... a challenge though when they when they're young and and that's exactly what I mean I did exactly that with Blackjack the aim was to go as far as we could and so I bought him as a youngster and and I'm nowhere near as experienced as you I'd only got just got back into it but yeah. I knew I, I knew what I wanted him to look like and I knew yeah. from a very, very naive perspective, I knew that I wanted him to do certain movements, which yeah. meant that he had to be built in a way that he could actually perform those movements. Yeah. If I was to buy a thoroughbred, I'm not going to be able to dance with him, you know, at dressage to music as well yeah. as if I had a Frisian cross-Gelderlander, which is what I ended up getting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but then i then I looked at the prices, and you're talking like ten twelve thousand yeah. pounds, and that was a an inexperienced dressage horse, yeah, so the only option I had was to go for a youngster that was four thousand yeah and and hope that I'd be able to with help train him up to a certain level as it stands he's broken and mm. um and we can just about walk and trot. <laughs> now <laughs> but um that's another story which I've talked about loads he, he's got an yeah. injury so we're overcoming that injury now and um, it was before I bought him and and we're getting you know we're doing good we're cantering we're managing oh. to do a oh. canter but my point yeah. is that the youngsters are challenging yeah. and it is difficult and it is is it better to be more experienced you know you being more experienced to go for a youngster rather than somebody like me going oh well I'll give it a go
2: um I think it depends on the character of the horse, because if you've got a youngster that's willing to learn mm. then and and is willing to accept your mistakes, I think that's easier. If you've got something that's really quirky and sharp and actually doesn't really want to learn anything and is quite bullshy, I think that's when you get into problems. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, some people have been caught out with that, but mm. other times it works but um that's really
1: fascinating because he's exactly the chilled out he's exactly what you said he's the chilled out Mm. one and he's been very forgiving yeah (laughs) but then then I've had this mentality where I know I'm not experienced enough so I I surround myself with people that are experienced to help him so you know I have someone ride him that can teach him that those moves that I won't be able to teach him yeah, definitely. I mean,
2: I'm such a big believer in ask for help. You know, mm. like get a good support team and don't be afraid to ask somebody for advice because oh, you you can't do it on your own. Um, it's impossible.
1: No, you um, can't. And we've talked about this before, I spoke to a, a man called we interviewed a, a guy called Barry Cridland, who's a sports uh, hypnotherapist, and he does, he does CBT. And um, we say that we often see these top top riders, and they have all this, these teams around them, you know, they've got the psychologists and the the, um, the best trainers and the best box horse boxes and the best uh, horses. And actually, uh, for us as as amateur, you know, some of some of our listeners are amazing, you know, they're really, really good riders. But for us amateurs, we don't have that team around them and and we feel we can't ask the questions when actually we need to be asking for help and it's okay to ask for help. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think as well, I think if you ask somebody who doesn't want to give help, then they're clearly not the right person for you to hang around with anyway. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely.
2: (laughs) So, yeah, I'm always, you know, I always say just ask for help and even... Even now with my mare, you know, I'm, I'm asking for help and, um, you know, I'm still asking questions and things because you can never know anything. You can't know everything all the time and things change, don't they? So, what is um, it that you
1: do with your mare?
2: At the moment, well, I've only had her eight days Ooh. and she's unbroken um, so I've just been starting doing in-hand work with her. Um, just very basic um, walking forward, standing, um, rain back. And she did her first little bit of leg yield today. Oh. Um, yeah, so I'm just starting her very slowly because she's a little bit poor. And uh, she just needs to grow a little bit. She's very croup high and her withers are very prominent at the minute. Mm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm just doing lots of in-hand work on the caverson with her.
3: How um, old is
1: she? Four. Oh bless her.
2: Yeah so. Uh, so you
1: then just, when you start horses you do it all in hand first before you back them?
2: Yeah definitely getting them to I mean I haven't really started lunging her yet but just things like taking her out for the, for a walk on the roads, um, then coming into the arena and you know just sort of just teaching her the basics and In hand, um, you know, I want her to learn all the lateral movements first and then I'll start long reining her and do that, you know, go through the same thing but on the long rein, so Mm. that when I do eventually get on her, she completely trusts me and she knows what leg yielding is. She knows what a turn on the forehand is. She knows how to rein back so that it's not such a big shock when all of a sudden somebody's on top and you're asking Mm. all sorts of crazy things. (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah how, how big is she what size
2: she's 42 but I have a feeling she might be a little bit bigger because she's croup high at the moment and she's dead on fourteen two.
1: Mm.
2: so I, I think I think there yeah. might be a bit of growing
1: I love yeah I love in hand work I think it's, it's so beneficial and yeah. for, for, for having so much time with blackjack he had two years off they told me I had to put him down because he's got right. an injury with his front right leg where um the ligaments have wrapped around each other And he'd hurt himself, maybe in the field, I don't know. I have my suspicions of how he hurt himself, but that's by the by. Um, And nobody helped him, and Mm. they didn't call a vet. So if the vet had been called, the vet would have been able to fuse the ligaments back together. But because he was left, they've wrapped around each other. So three months after I bought him, he went lame, and I couldn't work out what it was. And I ended up, I found out that this was the issue. And the vet said, well, you can't use him, you can't ride him, so you have to put him down. And I said, well, is he in pain? And they said, well, no, he's fine. He's field sound. Mm-hmm. So no, he's fine. So I said, okay, well, in that case, I can't put him down. He's my baby. He's like my yeah. big dog. <laughs> like yeah. this, is, this is now Black Jack Stevenson. He's part of the family. <laughs> like, so <laughs> we decided, I decided to retire him and said, okay, mm-hmm. he's four years old. Um, he can just live a life and, and, as a horse. And yeah. then and but what I wanted I still had such a great bond with him that I used to go and see him in the field and we'd play we'd just play and I, I yeah. called that in hand play because yeah. you know he'd want to follow me for a treat and he'd want to yeah. walk around in a circle and all the bits that we do in hand and I have to say it's the best bond I've ever had with a horse yeah. is, is yeah. this because we had two years of just learning to trust each other yeah. so two years later the vets did their assessment and they said well it's a bloody miracle you won't believe it but you you can get back on yeah and I was like are you kidding like I don't want to hurt him and they said no you won't just just see how you get on and now it's six months down the line and and we're cantering which is incredible but I couldn't have done that I don't think he would have been the horse he is now if I hadn't had that in hand time with him where you build trust yeah yeah definitely the difference is I now want to go back and do more in hand stuff yeah. but when I bought him he was 15 3 at 4 he's now 6 and he's over 16 hands to the extent that I've stopped measuring him because he still hasn't stopped growing <laughs> yeah and I think Brilliant. if it gets any bigger I'm gonna to be too afraid to get on him <laughs> um so in hand with a, a over 16 hand horse is quite difficult because I'm too small to get round yeah Yeah. 14 hand horse is probably a bit easier because you can really get your hands around the neck and show them what to do
2: so it's certainly because I've only ever had you know ridden sort of 17 hand plus horses so when I first saw her I thought oh my god she is so tiny Mm. but now that I've gotten used to her and um you know she she spooked the other day and I just you know and it was fine nothing happened I just thought god if that had have been you know one of my others at 17 hands I'd have been off down the road then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's actually just so nice and easy to have
1: something a little bit smaller mm. um so it's easy to control <laughs> so what's your plan with her then what do you want to do with her
2: she wasn't a um I wasn't thinking of buying a horse Mm. and I just saw the advert and I pretty much went back to the advert three times within an hour (laughs) and I thought oh my god I need to look at the source because I haven't you know I've been sort of retired for four years and I think I she's she's my therapy she Mm. I just want to enjoy being around horses I want to enjoy teaching her things and um I will just take her up as far as she's enjoying the work and what she wants to learn, um, on, you know, a bit of Sunday morning hacking and a little <laughs> bit of jumping, and um, yeah, so I just want to enjoy being around horses again, and uh, and it's
1: if- an escape and it's it is, yeah. It's just it's there's nothing no other way of, of being able to explain you try and explain to somebody that you know doesn't know anything about horses they're like why do you love it so much I'm like, I just it just takes my mind off everything all the other rubbish that's going on whether it's work whether it's home whatever is the one time that you have to think so hard about the horse and what's going on at that time that you yeah. literally live in the moment you
2: do definitely and you know there's been times this week where I've turned up at the yard quite stressed and I was like right before I go and see her I need to calm down and I just need to forget about work because she will pick up on the stress and she's a little bit insecure so if I go into her space too quickly she will turn around and she won't be having any of it so I've you know I'm still sort of thinking okay I've got to calm down because it's not about me now it's about her and Afterwards, you know, an hour later, I'm back at work and I'm really happy again.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, therapy It's good. It's expensive therapy, but, yeah. You know, it's working. <laughs> it helps. Well, it helps with our own self-management because I don't think I've ever been this calm in my life. <laughs> what Definitely. about your um, What about your your other half? Is he horsey? No, he isn't. But um, you
2: know, we're kind of, kind of getting there. Um, he came. He's very supportive. Mm. And um, he came with me to have a look because, you know, I thought I was going to be a bit delusional thinking, why am I getting this horse? And I need a second opinion. Hmm. Um, And yeah, he knows nothing about horses, bless him. So when when I asked if I should go for it, if it's the right thing to do, he said, well, she's got nice fur and she's got nice eyes. I think (laughs) you should.
1: (laughs) Oh, bless him. How long have you guys been together?
2: Coming up to four years.
1: Oh, gosh. Have you managed to get him on a horse yet?
2: Yeah, actually, I have. Um, So I took him pony trekking in the Black Mountains in Wales a few years ago. Yeah. And then um, up at Burley Manor Riding School, we went out for a hack in the New Forest.
1: Oh, beautiful.
2: Um, And uh, I'm going to try and get him on Millie when she's ready because he is so calm. He just sat there. He's got beautiful hands and... I just said you know just sit a little bit tall and just sort of relax into your seat and you wouldn't have known that he's
1: never ridden. Oh it's uh, ridiculous. Men are unbelievable. I see so many guys go and have lessons and it's their first lesson and they're trotting and he's like how it's taken me years to get like that. How have you done it in one go? But I think it's their natural upper body strength. Yeah. They tend to be quite stiff in the legs and they tend to put their legs forward but their upper body is always just stunning.
2: and you know I was just like let's try a trot and this is how you go rising trot and you know first time was a little bit and I said just go with the movement and you'll be fine and it you know rising trot not a problem just (laughs) going for us oh god you know something else is (laughs)
1: I'm yet to get my other half on a horse yet I mean he does come down to see blackjack and he'll he'll give out hay but he still needs to be supervised yeah So yeah. there's the moments When we've just had a, a little crazy pony He's only three He hasn't been backed yet And he's just joined the field For a few months Yeah And um, he's quite a, a Quite a bolshy pony I think he's ready to be handled okay. uh, To take the next step now And uh, and he loves it When it comes to feed So I've never seen anybody Run so quickly In all my <laughs> life <laughs> <laughs> this horse came charging and this horse is tiny it's a little new forest 12 hand pony yeah. and, and bless mark he just threw the haylage jumped the fence <laughs> and I, <laughs> so yeah he, st- he still needs a little bit of help but he will get on eventually it's is yeah. my mission <laughs> for this year yeah. and so I'd, la- I'd love to go back to your grand prix days then yeah. of you represented great britain for a while didn't you
2: yeah i was on the young rider team that's
1: amazing where did um, it
2: take you Well, it was um, 2004, uh, I think, so quite a while back. Um, But yeah, so we were really heavily involved with um, BIRDS and uh, British Dressage. So what does BIRDS stand for? The British Young Riders Dressage Scheme. It was set up years and years ago by Ian Woodhead and Paul Haler. And it used to be held at Addington. And back then it was by invitation So if you had like consistent um, scores in in your dressage test and things, you'd get asked to to join and it would be four weekends over the winter training months. And you'd have two lessons a day, I think it was, and you'd have lectures and everything in the evening. And it was just to help young riders, you know, get going and sort of find their feet. And um, I think it's sort of run a bit more regionally now, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, to give people more access to it. But yeah, so um, that's kind of where it all started. And then through that, we went through, um, you know, sort of selection days and, you know, you you move up the the levels in the dressage. And um, yeah, we got picked to compete at the Home International, which was held in Scotland. Oh, wow. And it's a bit of a distant memory, actually. But um, I can remember it being very hot and we had to, uh, I think we had to go through a PSG, I think one of the young riders, but yeah, it was certainly a great experience. And then what did you do from there? So at the time I was still at uni and I did equine sports science at Lincoln Uni and, ah, oh, good question, what did I do after? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I just sort of started riding for myself after that and I was self-employed um, doing, doing the riding and um, I really loved going to the gym and I thought, you know what, I'm not sort of really ready to get a proper job yet. So I'll just do my personal trainer's course instead whilst I'm riding. Because mm. um, I I know the sports science behind the equine side. And now I want to know more about the human side. Because again, for me, because I wanted to reach the top, I felt like I had to know everything. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do it as well.
1: Yes.
2: Um, so that's why I became a personal trainer. And combined the two.
1: Oh, lovely. And so this time then, so you, you're becoming a personal trainer and you're still, are you still competing and riding at the yeah. same time?
2: Yeah, definitely. And so I'm are you thinking... doing, what,
1: what competitions? Are you Are you competing internationally? Because, you know, Grand Prix is, is the top level.
2: Yeah, so it was all, um, it, so young riders stuff wasn't international. It was just sort of on national British dressage level. Mm. I hadn't got to Grand Prix then. I was still riding p s g and then I went to Germany with my p s g horse learnt grand Prix and then sold him oh. um so that was quite a hard decision, but he was thirteen and when they did the first lot of x-rays um he had signs of arthritis setting in
1: oh, bless him. and
2: he just wasn't gonna be able to take me as far as I wanted to go so i I sort of decided that you know i needed to i needed to carry on my journey um mm. And uh, And I look at things like
1: that and I think, well, you know, you've given somebody else the opportunity to learn off him.
2: Yeah, he was such a good young rider horse and he was so good at PSG, you know, that and at young rider level, he wasn't going to be worked as hard. So I think, you know, it was a good I think it was the right decision to make for him as well, because obviously I didn't want to take a horse to that level And him not feeling comfortable because that just wouldn't have been fair. No. And
1: is your mum still riding at this point?
2: No. So mum gave up. I think after she had my my sister. So I think she stopped riding at sort of thirty eight ish. So yeah. Did she she compete? Did she do pre St George? Yeah. Yeah, she didn't get. um, She wasn't sort of that much into dressage competition wise. She was more. She enjoyed her jumping and um, her hunting. Mm. and bringing on young horses. That was her main thing. So do you still bring on other people's horses now? No, not at all. I retired from riding four years ago. Why did you do that? I'd had a really bad job and I basically just didn't love riding anymore. And I woke up one morning and I thought, I don't love this. And if you have horses or animals, if you don't wake up every morning loving what you do, then you can't do it because it's not fair to the animals the job wasn't great my situation at the time wasn't brilliant i had sort of always set my sights on you know sort of going grand prix sort of for 2012 and sort of going down that route and she just wasn't ready she wasn't the type of horse that you could push to that level that quickly mm. and um i thought well you know i've given it my best shot and i thought it's time maybe to move on and do something else. So I literally sold everything I had. And um, my husband at the time was then stationed because he's in the army. So he got stationed to pull. So we moved down here. And yeah, and that's it, really. <laughs>
1: the rest of the last <laughs> few months. <laughs>
2: that I was like, hmm, I'm starting to miss this again. Maybe it's time to it's time to ride again <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well now you live in an environment where we, we're really lucky in dorset we have the beach the beautiful beach and we've got the forest and you can't get away from horses here because there's loads no. of wild ones in the new forest so wherever you look it's something like one in three people ride or one in three people have a very close connection to horses So it's definitely a horsey pace. So you set up your business (laughs) here then. You set up your business as a personal trainer and and you are a a rider personal trainer.
2: Yeah, so I do your general personal training as well. And um, I thought I would... I tried to get into rider fitness quite early on, but the Equi Pilates had really taken over and everybody was sort of raving about that. And I thought, okay, well, it's not, I'm not really doing that. I'm trying to sort of get people fitter to ride. Um, And it took a little bit of getting going, because I think every time something new comes on the market, people are like, okay, well, we'll just suss this out a little bit and then you know, when when we see other people go through it, we, you know, we'll we'll join in. Yeah, so it took a little bit of getting going, but now I run rider fitness courses, workshops, clinics, do fitness assessments uh, and movement assessment on and off the horse because it's you know it's so important to not be super fit, but you have to be fit to ride to give your horse the best opportunity to to move well. Because mm. if you're not moving well and if you're not symmetrical then you can't expect your horse to move well and symmetrical um, because you mirror each
1: other all the time. I found it fascinating when uh, I was talking to Zoe Squirrel last week, who's one of your clients, yeah. and she is the power dressage rider. And And one thing she said to me that stuck out was that her yeah. walking on a horse is the equivalent of, of an able-bodied person walking because it gets the same muscles moving. So muscles that she wouldn't be able to use because of her disability, the riding actually moves those muscles, and yeah. I've forever said, I feel muscles when I'm riding that I didn't even know existed. You know, <laughs> yeah. like I'm, I have aches and pains. that I'm like, wow, is there really a muscle there? It, it yeah. There's so much more to it than I think we actually realize. Definitely. And
2: and as well, you know, it comes with you're in a kind of in a fixed position as well. So um, sometimes, yes, you, you're using muscles you're not used to, but also you're activating or kind of deactivating muscles that you're not using. So um, I remember when I was riding nine horses a day, I was walking like a granny because my (laughs) hips were so tight Mm -hmm. and because I was constantly in that position. So it's really, you know, important to keep yourself moving and strengthening yourself off the horse as well. And I think in, in Zoe's case, you know, the horse helps her to move parts of her body that she struggles with, but even... You know, even with her sort of disability, she's come on so
0: well. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
2: And she's, you know, she's using her body more. She's realizing how she can use it. And we're always improvising. If I want her to do something and she says she can't, then I'll be like, okay, well, I'll find something to help you that will move that body
1: part. <laughs> so. mm, yeah. I keep getting told that I need to separate my upper body from my hips. So um, okay. an example is when it comes to swimming, Swimming's supposed to be really good for lactic acid. It gets rid yeah. of the lactic acid in your body. So yeah. after, um, see, I know a little bit, but I don't know a lot. So um, yeah. my brother was a professional rugby player. So he'd quite yeah. often tell me little tips. That, and he said, like, once you've been to the gym or once you've done some exercise, go for a swim because it gets rid of the lactic acid and that will prevent you from being sore the next day. So I said, OK, brilliant. Yeah. Problem is I'm rubbish at swimming. So <laughs> when it comes to um, like swimming breaststroke, I have very bad issue with my hips where my hips click. And I've had it since the youngster. And I can't, Do breaststroke properly because my legs go up and down rather than out and round. (laughs) It's really not great. So when it comes to horse riding, I have an issue Mm. where I'm always being told I need to separate my upper body from my hips and so that my hips can move. So I thought, right, the only thing I can do is my friend started hula hooping. Mm-hmm. And with hula hooping you have to really release your whole muscle your whole body needs to learn to move one section by itself like from yeah. from your head down to your neck down to your shoulders your arms your your even even your upper body needs to move at a different pace to the rest of the body so yeah. I took up hula hooping and I have to say it's the best thing I've ever done to be able really? to <laughs> yeah to be at one I don't need to be outside in the rain yeah <laughs> um, two i can do it whilst watching senders and i just do a little bit of hula hooping and it's helped me to release the hips because my hips yeah. are too stiff all the time still can't yeah. swim but at, yeah. least my, <laughs> at least my hips are released yeah no that's you
2: know i think as well it's the same training people is the same with horses you have to find what works and if swimming doesn't work well then it doesn't matter because find something else mm. it's the same when you're training horses if if one aid or something that you're doing isn't working then try and find something else because it's obvious you know that bit is just not
1: right for that horse or that person um and also we're so time limited so you understand because you've you've been in the industry the equine industry for years you understand how time limited we are and we do a lot of exercise looking after our horses anyway I mean it's for me it's been the best weight loss program ever trawling yeah. hay and the water <laughs> yeah. buckets and walking around a field looking for a shoe you know yeah. for three hours it's more exercise than I've ever done um but when it comes to riding we really notice it we need to have stamina we need to learn how to breathe oh because that's the other thing you know if I'm cantering and I'm scared I stop breathing yeah, <laughs> yeah I feel like that one <laughs> yeah (laughs) so with with you you can teach us to work our muscles and keep our heart rate going but at the same time breathe through it because that's so important yeah
2: definitely I think it's one of the one of the things especially when you're riding difficult horses or young horses you've got to be the leader so Mm. you have to have a strong body position so if you don't have that then what has your horse got to you know got to look up to to say actually it's okay I'm taking the lead here yes, I, I can't stress how important it is to, you know, sort of be fit to ride, mm. um, because we spend so much time, I mean, speak to anybody, you know, how how long do you warm your horse up for? Well, I walk him 10, 20 minutes, then I'll start with some lateral work, then I'll move into trotting, but I'll go rising trot and ride nice and deep and low, just to lengthen the back muscles and to stretch him out. I'm like, okay, how long, how long do you warm up for? Well, I've been at a desk all day, nine to five, then I've got in the car, um, I've done you know quick brush over um, put the saddle on and got on well your hip flexors and your thoracic spine are just so tight and compressed and then all of a sudden we want our horses to move freely and you know be athletic with it and it's just not quite gonna happen because like I said the horse mirrors you so Mm. unless you're moving you know really well don't expect
1: your horse to move really well so, what can we do then? Let's say we're time limited. What can we do to just add that extra bit? I mean, obviously, it would be amazing if we could go to a class every day or go to the gym every day and you know go and do all this exercise um yeah. but at the at the bare minimum, what should we be doing before or after we're
2: riding? So before you get on, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit guilty of this because I used to warm up while I was in, I'd tacked up and I'd just do a couple of stretches, a couple of exercises just before I got on mm. just to, I think as well, just to take, you know, two minutes of time out, not to think about work or anything and just get into the mindset of what you're going to do. So things like a couple of squats, um, a few hamstring stretches, um a, a couple of stretches to really st- open the hips up because obviously you don't, you know, you don't want to ride with tight hips. You want them nice and open. And just a few shoulder stretches and, you know, arm circles just to open the chest and get the shoulders back. That's all you have to do. You don't have to, you know, spend an hour, seven days a week in the gym, you know, hammering it out. It's just to um, be, I think, be a bit more body aware and know where your asymmetry lies Uh, as well so that you when you ride the horse you know what your faults are so if for example you're right-handed and you're doing a right shoulder in it's going to be so much stronger than a left shoulder in Mm. so you just know okay my left side's a bit weaker. I need to work more on my position to get a better shoulder into the left and yeah being a bit more body aware and going from there
1: also things like, you know, holding our hands up, we have a, an awful habit of dropping one hand lower yeah. than the other one. Mm-hmm. And then we also, I say we, um, I get shouted, hands down, legs down. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, those always a head up, hands down, legs down. So, you yep. know, my hands all skew off and I'm you know, we need to keep our legs longer, stretch our legs down. So a habit that we have is crunching up all the time. And and I found from wearing heels, that's not great. Heeled shoes really don't help. So I moved to flatter shoes to try and strengthen the calf. But what else can we do to try and get our legs longer?
2: I think that's a difficult one because you've got to look at the saddle at the same time. Because if the saddle doesn't fit or the knee blocks are too high or too narrow the way that the saddle puts your legs into position um you've kind of got to take that into account Mm. but just making sure that your hamstrings are long because when you ride the hamstrings are shortened so if they're even shorter than that that will you know bring the heel up so ride, ride with longer stirrups not necessarily longer stirrups but maybe like before you get on touch your toes a couple of times or try and touch your toes like a good indicator is if you reach down and you can't touch your toes, you know you've got tight hamstrings and you're a little bit tight in the lower back.
3: Mm.
2: So maybe doing a couple of stretches like that will definitely help. And also core stability because the stronger the centre of your body is, the more independently you can then move your limbs. Mm. So if you're, if you're a little bit weak through the core and especially through the lower back, then you're going to use your legs more and your hands more to find that balance so if you're really weak and like your horse shoots forward for example you're going to lift the hands up because that's the natural way for your body to get its balance back is to put your hands out yes and same with the legs if you struggle to keep the leg long it's because you can't control the legs independently from the core and then they're going to rise up because our natural position of safety is the fetal position So naturally, you want to bring everything in for security. Mm. So it's it's training the body to uh, be strong to move everything independently.
1: Okay. Oh well, that that my other half will be grateful because at the moment I'm getting him to pull my legs every day. (laughs) Can you? I have to lie down. He has to pull the the pull. I was going to say my hoof then. you know my heel I'm like just stretch these legs down please yeah but and also the the 30-day plank challenge yeah I'm working on that to try and get the the core going so basically like you said earlier it's just being more aware of of our body and and trying to get our core strength stronger yeah
2: definitely Uh, can you touch your toes if you stand up can you touch your toes oh I don't know
1: I'll give it a go hold on hold on let's have a look I'm very tight okay Yes, I can yeah. just <laughs> <Well done. laughs> I can just about
2: touch my toes. <laughs> yeah. So, like the next the next sort of step from there is to see if you know, keep stretching and just try and get your palm to the floor rather than your fingertips.
1: That sounds like I'd never be able to do that in a million years. <laughs> you know those girls when you when you're young and you have to go to dance class at school yeah. and you see the girls that put their legs behind their elbow behind their head and they're all doing this weird crab backwards thing. Never, yeah, that never was- no wasn't it? <laughs> was it was that you? No, no it wasn't. I've really had to,
2: I'm not a naturally flexible person. I've really had to work on my flexibility, and I think doing the rider fitness, um, I. I do a class on a Thursday night and just stretching once a week helps so much. So, yeah, so I I do have to work on my on my flexibility. It doesn't come natural.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You understand our pain. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jessica, thank you so much. You know, you've been absolutely fascinating to talk to a pleasure to talk to. How can we find out a bit more, you know, about the fitness regimes that you do and the training that you do? Do you have a website?
2: I have a website it's jessicagrovept.com. Yeah you are Uh, based
1: in Dorset but you do travel all over the country and you hold clinics all over the country.
2: Yeah I do. Workshops either with just riders or or clinics where I watch people ride uh, and I assess people on and off the horse Um, and then looking at how they how they move and um, give them exercises and a little workout that they can do at home or before they get on to help improve those problems
3: mm-hmm.
2: um and yeah and i, and I have um Dorset i have a, a ride of fitness stretch class which is a bit of pilates yoga and conditioning all mixed into one and uh, a strength and conditioning
1: group as well so that's where we lift weights in that one and uh... this is going to sound really random but the way that things are moving wouldn't it be awesome if if people, if they want to join the class, but they can't because they live in Hertfordshire or London or whatever, mm. they could pay you like as if they were in the class, but you could all do it via Skype. So you could set up your Skype computer and they could be in the class at the same time. Yeah. Uh, well, funny you should mention because I'm about
2: to set up an online training. Um, no way. for riders because i've had i i post on facebook quite a lot and the main thing that's always come back is oh i wish i wish i lived closer or i wish Mm. we could have something like this here so i'm setting up um which should be ready possibly sort of 12 14 days online so basically people can send in um, a video of how they ride or sort of uh, problems that they're having um, and then i write them a program and then email it over
1: that's such so, yeah, a good idea. So I'm
2: trying to reach out a little bit more and try and help as many people as i can
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh bless you
2: and are you on twitter i am on twitter but i i do most of my social media stuff on facebook to be honest okay what's your facebook account jessica grove feel free to add me as a friend and my page is jessica grove personal training
1: jessica thank you so much i'm um, i'm gonna book you I need I need you to come to the <laughs> I need you to help us both. Yes, yeah, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's been really great. No worries. So we can follow you at Jessica Grove PT on Twitter or Facebook, Jessica Grove. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Jessica. You take care. Bye. 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 <laughs> On to my next guest, um, a lovely lady called Lauren St. John. She's based in London in the UK and is an author, but she's also a wildlife activist. Lauren, how are you? Very good, Amy. Good to talk to you. I found you on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Twitter's amazing. As you do, yeah. yeah. And, and I saw your bio and I just found it fascinating. And you've written a few books. Um, the latest one, actually, you sent it to me. It's a short story called yeah a horse for valentine's day and now i'm going to be completely honest i don't i should find more time to read but i don't and it's a nightmare my life's so busy and then i've got the horses and i read i read a horse for valentine's day and i loved it i loved getting back into reading and it's really bad but i ran a bath and i just read it while (laughs) i was in the bath and i i didn't i i couldn't wait to get to the end to find out what happened and the, oh, the great thing about a short story is it only takes about 10 minutes to read. <laughs> yeah. But your main one that you're, you, you know, you're famous for is your book, One Dollar Horse.
3: Yes, One Dollar Horse. What's One Dollar Horse about? It's a trilogy and it's it's about 15-year-old uh, Casey Blue, who's grown up in the east end of London and a really rough uh, tower block. And her dream is to be an inventor and go to badminton. But, um, Although she does volunteer at this kind of run-down stables, she's um, got absolutely no hope of getting anywhere until her and her father uh, rescue a, a horse from a uh, knacker's yard, and they save this horse, but they've got nowhere to take it, and um, they buy it for a dollar, which they find uh, they find on the street right before they rescue the horse oh. um, in the in the gutter, and then it it's whether or not she can do it, and uh, she's got so much against her her. Um, Her father's got a criminal record, so it's not just that she's got no money, no uh, experience, no any of the things that you need to make it as an event, really. But she's also got her father's criminal record working against her, and so it's about their story. And then uh, it's a trilogy, so Race the Wind is the second book in the series, and Firestorm is the third, and they're all about, um, the second one is about uh, the Kentucky three-day event and the firestorm is about the Burley Horse Trials.
1: Oh wow! And um, I find it really, really fascinating, like amazing how you go into so much detail that even like the the riding stables that Casey started at were called Hopeless Equestrian, Hopeless Lion, yeah, Hopeless lion. And <laughs> well, I just... that she, she nicknames Hopeless yeah. layoneer. <laughs> and you go into so much detail, and you're very knowledgeable about the equestrian industry in your books. Is that because you've got a horse background?
3: Yeah, I grew up in Zimbabwe and we had eight and I really desperately wanted to be um an eventer when I was growing up. But I had living where I had we had no very little money because the reason we had eight horses is because in, on a farm in Africa you can pretty much have eight horses for free. They just wander around eating whatever's on the farm and um our like our stables were built with bricks from our farm. Uh, the, they were thatched with grass from our farm that even the paddock fencing was made with from gum poles on the farm so um we could have all the stuff and people were always giving away their horses so it was easy to, our horses weren't shod we did most of our own veterinary work so it was it sounds strange we didn't have much money but so we were able to have all these horses but dreams of being an inventor weren't, uh, <laughs> weren't really possible but um i could do really cool things so on our on our a, we had a 1,000-acre farm, and we had a 100-acre game reserve on it. Mm, I like we had our own pet giraffe. <laughs> and my father built me a cross-country course through the game reserve. And I also had a, a separate field where he built me some show jumps to practice show jumping. So, yeah, I had cool things like that, but no, but
1: Did bad. he? He didn't have... I mean, how many elements of your own life did you put into your books? Did your father have a criminal background? <laughs> definitely
3: not my, my my father's the sort of person who would drive like at 10 miles an hour in a in a 30 mile an hour zone god you know he's terrified of the law um no uh i think when because i now live in london and i miss horses although i get to, to ride occasionally i don't i don't have a horse and going in and out of london on the train i often pass tower blocks and and i always used to think like I was so fortunate to have horses growing up and I tried to imagine being completely horse crazy like I was and growing up in an environment where I had absolutely no access to horses. So it was really easy for me to imagine the two things, firstly really struggling to get a horse, but also having no money to actually do anything with them. Cause I mean, it is obviously lots of people start from difficult backgrounds, you know, like Mary King is a good example. Um, but it's obviously really hard. It is a sport that costs money.
1: Mm. To make it to the top, yeah, you need Absolutely, to, yeah, you, yeah. you need the support. Um, a friend of mine is a teacher in London. She, yeah. uh, I think it's near St. John's Wood, somewhere around there. And she looks after children that are very much like the kids that you're talking about, you know, from the tower blocks. They don't mm-hmm. seem to have much hope. So every year she takes a group of them, she takes mm-hmm. 10 of them, to Jamie's farm. And Jamie's farm has all these animals, including horses, and they do—they have a week there of therapy, and these kids—these oh, really? kids come back totally different. You know, yeah, they,
3: it's amazing.
1: They it's learn a... respect, they learn mm-hmm. how to care for an animal, and they end up being nicer to each other. They're nicer mm-hmm. to her as a teacher, and she's seen the difference in these kids. So she's done it for about four years now. She's seen mm-hmm. so much difference that she just keeps taking them. Yeah, and we often talk about horses being therapy, and and horses you know oh, very you, much they're giving you hope because of the relationship mm-hmm. i can see there's pictures behind you though of um, of horses there is that one of yours from zimbabwe uh it's my horse Morningstar. star which you might be able to see uh yeah so did you ever compete
3: uh i did uh low level show jumping and uh lots of jimkanas and things like that yeah
1: and and now you write full time
3: i've always written full time since i was uh yeah for the last 23 years that
1: must be quite hard to make a living it, you know it's it, we hear stories of how it's so hard to get published i guess once you are published then they're just waiting for the next book uh no that's <laughs> definitely not
3: the case no <laughs> you're only as good as your next book it doesn't matter how many books you've got published and especially i mean it's really tough at the moment like lots of uh independent publishers are being swallowed either going bankrupt or being swallowed by bigger publishers and even big publishers that have been around for for decades are going bankrupt and it's a very it's a tough industry and um, especially you know for authors who are really being squeezed and even people that have been best-selling authors are really struggling to get book deals and Yeah,
1: it's not it's not a given. No, do you think um, is that because we've changed as a society and now we're reading less like, you know, I I openly said at the beginning, I don't read as much as I'd like to. And Mm. it's through time constraints. However, it was so easy to download your book today like it was mega easy. I I went onto Amazon, I clicked buy, I got the short story 99p straight down to my phone within a couple of minutes. And that was it. I was reading it on my phone. And I can take that anywhere with me. Mm -hmm. So is it true that people are are reading less? Um, I don't think it is, actually. I think
3: there is an element of that in certain segments of the population. I think with kids, especially boys, there's a lot of competing things like video games and all of the things that, that that vie for kids' attention these days. Mm. So uh, social media, <laughs> Yeah, <Twitter. laughs> I, th- I think there's an element of that, uh, definitely. Uh, it, it's been interesting, actually, because over Christmas, there's a huge uh, resurgence in bookshop sales. I think people have gone away to, to try things like Kindle and some of them have enjoyed it, but then others have gone back to print books. No, I think uh, one of the hardest things is is like Amazon. It's... Prices being squeezed down, mm. uh, people wanting to sell books for nothing or just like they try to sell uh, records for nothing or music for nothing and airplane seats for nothing. And while, you know, like everybody, I appreciate things being free or cheap or at the end of the day, there has to be a reckoning where like people like to say, oh, well, if a book is available, if a full book is mm. available on Kindle, why can't it be free or really cheap? because it doesn't cost to publish anything, but a whole industry has, it's not just me that writes the book, and I might, I might spend a year writing a book, I might spend, you know, there's authors that spend 10 years writing a book, some people, one book is all they'll ever write, but it's not just me, it's the designer of the jacket, it's the, it's the copy editor, it's the proofreader. it's the editor of the book, it's the publicity people, it's everybody, everybody needs to be paid, so...
1: So. so you only get then one lump sum when you've actually published it. So for a year, is it is it tough? Uh, <laughs> well, I can't imagine thinking like, okay, we all get our monthly wages each month. I can't imagine thinking like, wow, okay, I have to, you'd have to wait a year before you've got any money coming in. And then you spend all this time writing this book and, it, and you're being creative and you've put everything into it for then people to turn around and say, no, you know what, I want it for free. Mm-hmm. It varies from contract to
3: contract, but uh, sometimes you don't get paid at all till you've written the whole thing. Uh, sometimes you get paid when you sign the contract, then when the book comes out, which might be 18 months after you've written it or a year after you've written it, and then you don't get the next bit till it comes out in paperback, which is a year after that. So it's often like a three year span of you starting to write a book and then actually getting the full amount of money. And I know when I wrote my first book, which was when I was 22, that was a huge shock for me because I, when the publisher said I oh, will pay you X to write it, um, it sounded like a huge amount of money to me. I was like, oh my god, you know, it wasn't. It was a tiny amount of money. But for me, I was very, very poor at the time. I, I thought, my goodness, like this is so unbelievable. I'll get, I could, I, I needed to spend a lot of money researching it because I needed to travel a lot. So I thought, well, this will pay for my, my travel and. And then I find, oh, no, I only get a quarter of it because that's how it works. <laughs> you get no. a quarter. Yeah, and then your agent uh, takes a percentage. And, yeah, so, so, but it's an amazing life. I wouldn't choose anything. And for me, especially, you know, to be able to write horse books and, and children's books, and um, I can kind of live my dreams in a way through the, horse, the horses that I, <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm, Casey and Storm in in my stories, so it's I wouldn't change my life for anything.
1: Well, that's also great because I felt like I was Casey, not not in so much of a of a growing up in a tower block. Uh, sadly but because I always wanted a horse when I was little always it was every every father Christmas list was a horse and every year I got told I'm really sorry father Christmas doesn't bring live animals and you know dad said to me one day when I was 15 you know what Amy you can have a horse when you can afford to buy one you know we can't afford one right now we can't afford the upkeep so you can have it when you can afford so at 28 I phoned him and said hey guess what I can afford to buy a horse and I've just got one <laughs> and, um, and that and that was how that's been a great feeling. Though. It was amazing. But now, at, at when well, I'm 31 now. I go back every time I'm with my horse. I go back to being a 12, 13 year old girl. That it's mm-hmm. it, it takes you back. That it's so weird, but into that mentality of what you oh, were thinking then. So. That, yeah, you know, like so. like Casey when she's in the office, uh, the office at the yard, and she's playing with the toys and she's playing badminton. You know, she's mm-hmm. she is on badminton mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. horse going to badminton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and She's jumping over things. I remember running down through the woods, you know, at school, and making jumps and jumping over the jumps. Absolutely, yeah. Because I couldn't <laughs> afford my horse, and that yeah, was yeah, yeah. in my imagination. And that's what's lovely about your books is you really grip that imagination, and you oh, take you. you took me back to being that girl. But you yeah. say they're aimed at children. What ages are your books aimed at?
3: Uh, well, I write for all ages, so I write books for children from three to five. I write adventure stories for from eight to twelve. I write uh, teenage and YA books and I write adult books. Um, my One Dollar Horse series, well theoretically they're aimed at anybody over eleven. And so I get tons of adults read them and eight year olds read them. It's it's the thing is about books, obviously bookshops have to put books in certain sections, but I try to write books that are, are universal and that would be enjoyed I mean, obviously, sometimes because of the content, it, it, it needs to be a certain age group. But um, I try to write books, that, especially with like the One Dollar Horse series. I really want them to be enjoyed by as wide an audience as possible. And whether that's a 10-year-old or whether that's a 90-year-old, you know, the, the more people that would enjoy it, uh, the better.
1: And that was, sorry, we had little Max there.
3: <laughs> sorry, my, <laughs> this is my Bengal cat, Max. I know you can't see him, but he's terribly cute. And you're, you're a wildlife activist at the same time? Yes, um, I'm an ambassador for the Born Free Foundation. And so um, I, when I was growing up, uh, my family, I, I had a pet giraffe and we had pet warthogs and, and ostriches and all sorts of creatures. And my family used to rescue lots of animals. We, were, we always had lots of orphaned and injured creatures in our house, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was, was a bit crazy. But um, at one point we had... Eight horses, eight dogs, uh, six cats, two warthogs, a goat and um, what a giraffe and whatever was kind of passing through at the time. I even had three pythons at various points.
1: Oh, my gosh.
3: So when I started writing uh, children's books, I wrote uh, my first children's book was called The White Giraffe. I found that I really missed, um, although I go back to Africa a lot because my family are all there, um, I miss working with animals. So I approached the Born Free Foundation. Uh, we did an amazing uh, competition together to get kids thinking about conservation and and saving animals. And um, I've been helping them and an ambassador for them ever since. And I've actually got to take a part in an art exhibition in New York at the moment uh, that's uh, raising money for them.
1: So you're an artist as well?
3: Uh, I paint and I... um, These are wildlife photos that are in the exhibition. So it's it's an exhibition called Vanishing Worlds at West Village Gallery in uh, actually New Jersey. And, rude, uh, yeah, so it's about their wildlife photographs I've taken. But yes, Born Free is amazing. So I go on rescues with them. I, I've rescued, uh, helped them rescue three leopards from a zoo in Cyprus. And uh, we took them to Born Free's sanctuary in uh, Shamori in South Africa. Hmm. And uh, and I've helped them. Uh, been on a, a rescue of dolphins in Turkey with them as well. Uh, so- they're re- really incredible people.
1: Yeah, so so Born Free look after or help rescue a whole range of animals. It's not just... I've, for some reason, years ago, I thought it was just the tigers and the lions.
3: No, it, it was started because Born Free... Uh, because when the film uh, Born Free happened, Virginia McKenna and Bill Travers, who starred in the movie in the 60s, they were really um, influenced by their time in Africa. And they started um, a charity that ultimately became Born, the Born Free Foundation, and they rescue animals from horrific situations of captivity. So that might be lions, might be bears, could be dolphins, basically. And they try to um, set them free. But it's unfortunately with animals that have been in zoos and circuses, uh, it's not as simple as just taking them to a wild space and opening the cage door. A lot of them, um, you know, they lose, they've never, they might've gone as cubs and never learned to hunt. Um, they might, some zoos take out their teeth or their claws. So basically what you want is to take them and put them in as free and as wild an environment as possible uh, mm. where they can feel wild again, but um, still you know, be taken care of to a degree.
1: I was shocked to hear that in Wales, there's still, there's still no law that circus acts can't use particular animals in the circuses.
3: Well, incredibly. I mean, even Bulgaria has banned the use of animals in circuses and the UK has not. And it keep, the bill keeps going to Parliament. And it, incredibly, it's literally one MP that keeps stopping it. At one point, it was about four, but I, I think it's now down to about one. This one person is, seems to think it's fantastic um, for animals to be taken out of their natural environment and exploited and abused in
1: circuses. Some people say that horses shouldn't be used in circuses. What do you think about
3: that? Well, I I wouldn't have any horse. Um, I think even aspects of um, not not pure dressage, but, you know, there are trainers that are guilty of, of exploiting horses. I mean, I think that all, if it was up to me, every animal, whether it was a cat or a dog or a horse or a, a lion, would would be... In its natural environment and be, be looked after. And, and while I love riding horses, I wouldn't change that. I, mm. I think because actually, if you go to places like badminton, you watch those horses, they love what they do. Mm. Most horses, um, you know, if, if they're looked after and loved and supported and proper, kindly trained, they really, really enjoy. Horses are curious things as well. They, you know, a smart horse, an energetic horse, will really relish. Us eventing and things like that so so yeah I think it's it so depends on the environment I wouldn't I wouldn't have any animals used in circuses if it was up to me definitely not mm.
1: and they don't really, we don't really need animals anymore with Cirque du Soleil and you know does. there's so exactly. much that the humans can do that is we definitely don't need lions and tigers I mean no one's no. ever seen a lion and tiger be looked after no. only no. ever beaten um, you must learn so much through doing your research for your books. Then you must be like a wealth of knowledge. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm definitely not a wealth of knowledge, but um, but it's fun. Um, researching books uh, is uh, is one of the most fun parts of my job. And I always, I always go to the actual place. So uh, if I'm writing uh, mystery adventure novels, um, like my Laura Marlin series, they're all set in exotic. And same with my White Giraffe series, they're all set in exotic destinations like the islands of Mozambique or Russia. Um, and I, I will always go to the place to, to research it. For my horse books, I went to, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with inventors and went to Badminton and Burley and even the Kentucky three-day event.
1: Oh, wow. What was that like?
3: It was brilliant. I was, it's just, it's wonderful. I think, you, I think it just gives thing, makes things um, a bit more authentic if you actually go there yourself and mm. see
1: things, mm. and it helps you write then as well, doesn't it? Because you actually oh, know you can put in, like I was saying, in the beginning. You've got that intricate detail that uh, you know, the BHS exams and all uh, oh, the little, the grooming box, the, the tiny, tiny, tiny <laughs> little things that most horse equestrian, most people that aren't horsey wouldn't wouldn't know. You'd say, a grooming box was well, that for me to shave my beard? <laughs> 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 what do you need that for? Yeah, yeah, yeah Oh well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. We can follow you on Twitter, can't we? What is, what's your Twitter
3: handle? Lauren St John, and my latest horse book is called *The Glory*. It's about a twelve hundred mile endurance uh, race across the American West. Oh wow! And I went there to research it. I drove eighteen hundred miles across um, the American West from Col- Denver, Colorado, to uh, Oregon, and uh, via Wyoming. And one of the greatest experiences of my life was I spent four days on a ranch. Incredibly, this ranch was six hundred and fifty thousand acres in Wyoming, and I rode a wild a formerly wild Mustang through the mountains, <laughs> and that was pretty special.
1: Is that endurance ride like the Mongolia? I've heard about the Mongolia Endurance yeah, that's trip. about 1,000, a a thousand, I
3: can't remember if it's 1,000 miles, or I think it might be 1,000 kilometres, but, uh, yeah, that's pretty amazing. And a South African woman won it last year, which was pretty incredible. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's an amazing sport, endurance riding. It's it's, it's really fascinating sport.
1: Is there anything particular that you learned from it that maybe we could take away? Because um, it's a very different concept, you know, with, with the main disciplines of riding, you can take a lot of the concepts of each one and combine them. So, you know, for example, with dressage, they take the techniques of the canter um, and making it soft and p- pushing the horse forward and bringing them back to gain control. They use mm-hmm. that for the jumping, mm-hmm. in the show jumping. So I'm just thinking, is there anything from endurance that we could maybe take for our other disciplines?
3: Um, actually, I think that one of the best things about endurance riding is is uh, the person it 's not about who's the f- fastest person past the post it's actually about the the winner is the best the horse that's in the best condition at the end of the thing so that and that 's measured by they take at all the different rest points they take the horse 's heart rate and see how quickly it returns to normal and I think that's pretty phenomenal because that means that instead of people really pushing their horses so you get these broken, wrecked horses at the end, Mm. actually it's the person who takes the best possible care of their horse that wins and whose horse has been, um, obviously, the best conditioned horse leading into it and has helped them. So I think that's a really wonderful thing about the sport, actually.
1: Lovely. Thanks, Lauren. (laughs) So your next book out, how can we get hold of that book? The Glory is out, out now in any
3: great bookshop or Amazon And that's for anyone from 11 and older, 11 to 90, (laughs) basically. (laughs) Um, And also the latest White Giraffe series, Children's Adventure, called um, Operation Rhino. And that's out too. Please, please try to buy them in real bookshops. But if you happen to buy anything on Amazon, and that includes a horse for Valentine's Day, please, please leave a review, even if it's only one sentence. That would be really helpful.
1: Every little helps. And obviously, we want to support the Born Free Foundation as well. So if you do get two minutes to donate, even if it's a pound, every little helps. Exactly. Thanks so much, Lauren. You take care. Thanks, Amy. That's really brilliant. See you. (laughs) All right, cheers. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Horse Hour. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you have a good week.
2: You've been listening to Horse Hour. Join the community on Twitter, Mondays, 8pm UK time, 3pm Eastern by using the hashtag HorseHour. Follow Amy at amystevenson1 and subscribe to us
0: on Acast, iTunes, Stitcher and Player FM.